with our life being hid with Christ on high. As our high priest standing before the throne of grace, let's go to him in prayer, asking for more of that grace. Would you pray with me? Merciful God, we approach you only upon the merits of our Savior's righteousness and sacrifice on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. We praise you for the promises of your word that you, triune God, are in unison affirming our righteousness in Jesus. That you, Holy Spirit and Son, in concert together are pleading our case before the Father. That we as your children would prosper and thrive in our love for you, in our obedience to you, in our pursuit of you. That we would be holy as you are holy, sanctified by your word, for your word is truth. Lord, we praise you that this is your desire, your clearly revealed will for us, that we as your church would be renewed and revived by the word of truth, that our hearts would be all the more warm in our love for you, burning with zeal and desire to honor you in every way possible. And so, Lord, we ask you, who sees us rightly and truly, who stands in the midst of your churches and with a gaze like the eyes of a flame of fire, you cut through all the noise and see what really is happening in our hearts. So, Father, we bow our hearts before you in this moment and ask for you to expose us to ourselves through your word. Would you take the mirror of your word in the minutes ahead and make known to us who we really and truly are before you? And then after seeing ourselves, would you exalt your son that we might see him who we should be like? And Father, would you then move us by your word through your spirit's power to be more conformed to Christ? This is our goal, our longing, our heart's desire. We confess we cannot make this happen in our own strength. And so before we open the word, we beg of you to open our hearts to your word. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter two. Revelation chapter two. It is not a controversial statement, I do not believe, to say this morning that the church in America is in need of revival. We are in need of God to do a work among us, to awaken us, to move in a unique way among us. Though that statement is not controversial, I think the meaning of that statement is. What do we mean as Christians when we long for God to revive his church? And what comes into your mind individually and personally when you think I long for spiritual revival myself and, and among the brothers and sisters as, as part of this church? These questions have been foisted upon us by recent events in broader Christian culture, particularly the Asbury Revival in Kentucky. And that's just the, the latest sampling of, of what many have termed God's work in the church throughout your history. You, you can think back to other times when God was at work or people thought God was at work in a unique way. 
recently you've likely read the reports, you've listened to podcasts, you've read the articles, you've seen the videos, you've reacted in some way to the latest social media hot takes on, on what's happening in Kentucky or what has happened there. And all of it presses upon your mind. What is revival? What is its nature and, and how does it happen? And, and once it has happened, what does it look like? What does it produce? Even if you're not thinking about those things in relationship to Asbury, I think all of us have walked long enough with the Lord to wonder about that for our own heart. Knowing that, that at points in our journey, we, we need God to do a work in us and move us. And what is it when you talk that way, do you mean? What are you longing for God to do for you, in you, and through you? We answer those questions as we have been last week and then this morning, not from our own wisdom and understanding. We, we don't look to our own experience. We don't look to some revival expert. We don't look to the, the voices out there that are giving us all kinds of ideas on revival. We, we don't look for the voice that's telling us what we already believe. We run to the word. What, what does God say about this? What does he already revealed to be true about what revival is and how it happens and what its result would be. I don't know of anywhere else in the scripture that it gives such a, a condensed answer to those questions than what we see in Jesus' words to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. If ever there was a church in need of revival, I think it is at least five of these seven churches. They're representative, representative of the church in every stage and age of its development. These were real churches in Asia Minor. They were actual local churches at the end of the first century. They all had been planted by the Apostle Paul and his associates during his missionary journey. So they're now into their second generation of believers. They're well established. The patterns of, of thought and practice are in place. They're facing intense persecution from the Roman Empire and from the Jews around them. And yet they are in need of God's work to revive their hearts. What we see in these seven churches, we see in the church in every age. That's why at, every, at the end of every letter in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus says, let, or he who has an ear, excuse me, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These are messages to a local church intended for a broader audience, the church of every age and in every place. So we do well, obviously, then to, to take heed, to listen, to hear and to respond. Of these seven churches that Jesus addresses, only two of them are, are fully commended and encouraged. There's, there's nothing negative said about two of the churches. They are doing well. The church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia are facing severe, intense opposition and persecution, and it's cost them greatly. And Jesus encourages them and says, you're, you're persevering well. Keep at it. Keep going. But the other five churches he addresses, he, he calls them to account. Four of the five, as he talks to, with them, he, he commends some things that are good in them, but then he confronts things that must be repented of and revived in their midst. And only one of the five has nothing commendable about it at all. Receives a, a round and stern rebuke from our Lord. We saw last week in chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is the one who has authority over his church. So the book of Revelation being about the things which are to come before Jesus tells the church, here's what's gonna happen. He has to tell the church, here's what presently is true about you. That's chapters two and three. 
Before he tells them what's presently true about them, he has to say, I have the authority to do, to do this. That's the end of chapter 1. John sees a vision of the resurrected Christ glorified in the midst of the churches, and he lets the church know he has the character, the nature, the position, the authority to say to the church what he is about to say to the church. All the questions that I asked you at the beginning about revival are, are interdependent questions. So how you answer one of those questions, you start to answer the rest of the questions. And so I'm asking the question last week and this week, when is revival needed? But by asking that question, I'm also in part answering the question, what is revival? And in part, I'm leading us to what would revival look like if it happened? Now, we'll get more specific about that in the weeks to come, but they're all interdependent. So you can start seeing answers to those questions as we work through this this morning, when is revival needed? Five of these seven churches needed revived. Why? What was wrong with them? What was happening in them? And, and how is that a mirror for what might be happening in us? We saw last week that the church in Ephesus needed revived because she was cold. She was cold. She was cold in her love for the Lord. She had left her first love. She had abandoned the works that she had done at first for her Lord. We went beyond that and saw in the church in Pergamum that the church needs revived because she is compromised. She's made partnership with false teaching and false practice. There were some in the midst of the church of Pergamum that held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, compromising truth and purity in the church. And so Jesus confronts Ephesus and confronts Pergamum and says, repent and remember and be revived. When the church is cold and compromising, she needs revived. We'll see this morning in the three churches that remain that the church needs revived when she is complacent, when she is self-confident, and when she is Christless. We see complacent right away at the end of chapter 2, the last letter to the church in Laodicea. Excuse me, that was chapter 3. The church in Thyatira at the end of chapter 2. The church that is complacent. Jesus writes his longest letter to the least significant church. They had the least influence and, and the, the least ability to have impact in their world. They were in a small town that, that really didn't mean much in the Roman Empire. But to Jesus, it mattered. It mattered what was happening in that church. And in specific, it mattered what was going wrong with this church. He writes his longest letter to this least significant church, and he says this in chapter 2, verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Notice, first of all, how Jesus represents himself to the church. He says, I am the Son of of God. This is the only time in the book of Revelation that Jesus is called the Son of God. It's a clear designation as deity. He wants this church to be reminded that he has the authority of God to address their church. Maybe they have been toying with the deity of Jesus. It doesn't say, we don't know, but he says right away, I am the Son of God. Likely they're dealing with emperor worship in their midst. People who say that Caesar is God and deserves to be worshipped. Jesus is reminding them, no, I am God. I am the Son 
of God. Verse 18, he goes past that to focus on two aspects of his appearance that we saw back in chapter 1. He reminds them that he is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. That is obvious enough, but it means he sees all things just as they are. To put it in modern terminology, he has laser vision. He sees through it all and knows everything. He's not in the dark about anything. He cannot have the wool of deception pulled over his eyes, which are like a flame of fire. He knows what's happening really and truly in the church in Thyatira. He knows what is happening really and truly in the church in Newton, Kansas. He knows what is happening really and truly in every heart. He is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. He also has feet that are like burnished bronze. It's a reference to the exalted position of a king who is in judgment over his subjects. Approaching his throne is all you see is his feet. And his feet, Jesus's, are like burnished bronze. The the burnished bronze idea is a, a metal alloy that is bright and unbreakable. Shiny so that you cannot miss it. Unbreakable so that his judgment cannot be overthrown. He is the obvious, supreme, exalted judge over the church. And he says to this church in Thyatira, I'm the all-seeing, all-knowing judge, and I have this to say about you. He starts in verse 19 with words of tremendous encouragement. And beloved, be encouraged by this. Be encouraged that as he sees us as we are, we know he has things that he would love to change in us and is at work to change. But there are things which please our Lord in the church. And he writes to his church to encourage them and to to rejoice in those good things. He says in verse 19, similar to like what he did in Ephesus, that there's a lot to commend here, church in Thyatira. He commends them for their love and their faith and their service and their patient endurance. And he even says, "Your, your works now are more than they were at the beginning. That's opposite of the church in Ephesus, right? Their works had waned. They they had lost their first love and left their first works. He says to the church in Thyatira, you've improved. You've gotten better. And he commends them for their love. This is a a great church in many ways. They're, They're doing better than they were even at the beginning. Jesus says, I'm not thrown off by those great signs of health. Like a doctor who has a, 35-year-old man in his prime of health walk into his office, he doesn't look at his appearance and say, well, you're in perfect health. You're in great shape. I don't need to do any tests. You must be fine. Jesus, the master physician, sees through all the noise and sees things as they really are. And he says this in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. What does Jesus say to this otherwise healthy church? 
He says, I have this against you. You're tolerating Jezebel. And what's the effect of that toleration? Well, she's teaching people and leading them astray into sexual immorality and into false worship, eating meat, sacrificed to idols, participating in the ceremonies meant to honor false gods. And so I ask you, is this a, a minor or a major concern? Can this be looked over because they're doing great in love and faith and perseverance and patient endurance and their latter works are greater than their first works, so let's cut them a little slack, right? Let's look past what's wrong here because it really it can't be that big of a deal. They're doing so well. If you're not convinced how serious Jesus is, just look at how he describes what's going on here. He, he calls this woman Jezebel, not her real name. He's, he's using an Old Testament name to, to make known to them how serious this is. He's pointing them back to the, the wife of King Ahab of Old Testament Israel. You remember her, right? A real peach of a lady. Remember how, how pleasant she was to the history of Israel and the impact of of worship and of immorality in God's people. She was awful. She was a a prophetess of Baal. She was a daughter of the king of Sidon who, through a marriage partnership to join these two countries, Israel and Sidon together in a partnership, Ahab married her. She brought with her all her Baal worship and she made it her goal in life to turn Israel into Baal worshipers. How did she do that? Well, she brought all of her Baal prophets with her. When Elijah confronted them on the mountain, there was 450 of them, probably way more than that. And she also made it her goal to rid the country of every prophet of Yahweh. And apparently she was so successful at that, when Elijah came back into the country, he thought he was the only real prophet of Elijah left. Now, he wasn't. God had saved several hundred already back uh, in his own means. But Elijah didn't know that. He thought that she had been successful. And she was so wicked and so vile that she was able to influence the entire country into full-fledged worship of Baal. This is seen so very clearly in 1 Kings 19 when Elijah comes against the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel, and that, that God battle, essentially, between Baal and Yahweh is played out on the scene of Mount Carmel. You see how horrifically uh, influence the people of Israel have been by Jezebel. They refuse to say the Lord is our God until they see the sacrifice of Elijah consumed by fire. They're so turned by Jezebel, so deceived, so led astray by Jezebel. This worship of Baal included horrific, immoral, unspeakable practices, public practices of immorality in the name of worship of a pagan god. This was the the course of the day in Jezebel's day. Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, you're tolerating one just like her in your midst. And we have no idea what she actually taught. We, We don't even know how she got to where she got from her teaching. But somehow she's convincing the saints in Christ's church to believe that they can participate in the worship of false gods. Not just be in the room, but they can also do the practices of pagan rituals. And however she got there, maybe she was a, an early Gnostic in which she 
She told them that, listen, there's a, a dualism in the world where spirit and, and that realm is all that matters. In the physical realm, it really doesn't matter. That's wicked and vile anyways, and so you can live however you want in the physical world as long as you're purified in the spiritual realm by Jesus. Maybe she did that. I don't know. Later on, Jesus commends some in Thyatira for not learning the deeper things of Satan. Maybe she said to them, listen, if we're going to reach the world, we have to know the deeper things of Satan. So we have to experience what the world teaches and does so we know how to reach them. Maybe that was her avenue in. I don't know. The text doesn't say. What we do know is the outcome. The fruit of her teaching was that God's people were mixing with pagan worship and immoral practices. But the worst of it is that the church was tolerating. More than that, they were, they were letting go of it or, or leaving it alone. They were essentially indifferent to it. They were unwilling to confront it, to expunge it from their midst, to deal with it. Likely, they were making excuses for Jezebel and her influence the elders of the church had let go of their responsibility to, to confront false teaching and guard the sheep. And Jesus steps in through this letter and he says, listen, I see it all rightly and I know what's happening. I know where you were on Saturday night before you came to worship on Sunday morning. I know before you gathered with the body on the Lord's day what you did on Wednesday. I know what you're really doing. I know the influence of this Jezebel. And I'm telling you, if you, church, won't do something about it, I will, Jesus says. I am the one who sees it rightly. I am the one who has feet like burnished bronze to judge thoroughly and completely. In fact, he says he's so angry He's going to come soon and deal with this. 21 to 23, he's very clear. He says, I gave Jezebel time to repent. And, and notice in the text, the issue confronted by Jesus is not the practice of sin. I don't mean to say that the practice of sin does not matter. It absolutely does. It cost Jesus his very blood on the cross. But the issue that Jesus will come from heaven to deal with is her lack of repentance. Jesus gave her time to repent, gave her time to turn from her sexual immorality, and she refuses. She knows she's wrong. She knows she's leading others astray. She's been confronted by Jesus himself, and she refuses. And so he says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to put her on a sick bed. And what he means is, I'm going to make her sick to death. She's going to die under my judgment. He goes on to say, not just her, but all those who follow and are compromised by her. I'm also going to come and deal with them. And beyond that, he says, I'm going to put her children to death. That seems harsh, like, well, physical children? No, 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 the children of her false teaching. Because Jesus knows that in the church, the second generation of apostates do a lot more damage than the first generation taking the false teaching of those who taught them and expanding its influence and its heresy far beyond those who founded it at first. And Jesus says, not in my church. Not in my church. I will deal with her. I ask you, beloved, why did Jesus write this letter? 
to this church at this time. To lay the sins of the church of Thyatira out there for every generation of the church beyond her to gawk at her? Oh my goodness. How dare they? Is that why he wrote this letter? Of course not. I'm being sarcastic. He wrote this letter to get her attention. To call her to stop tolerating Jezebel and her influence. To rise up to their God-appointed duty of being the pillar and the buttress of truth. To stand firm in the faith, once for all delivered to the saints on, on which they now hold the rope. And to say to them, hold it strong, tug harder, pursue by grace the purity of the body. When the church is complacent toward those who mix truth with error, leading others astray, then is she not like a judge who gets mixed up with organized crime? A judge has one responsibility, and that is to maintain and judge in accord with the law. When that judge gets mixed up with organized crime, it becomes then expeditious for him based on the money given to him behind closed doors to not uphold the law. And so in his complacency, in his role, he actually mitigates the very thing he's in the role to do. This beloved is the church who is complacent towards the truth, who tolerates in her midst false teachers who lead the sheep astray. When the church is complacent, she must be revived. She also must be revived when she is self-confident. That is the church of Sardis in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few, excuse me, yet you have a, I will get it right, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This is the church that thought it had a name, a spiritual reputation of, of spiritual life, of being good and useful to the Lord. And Jesus says, no, actually, you're dead. But there are a few among you who I do still have, a, a few names that are still mine, who have not yet soiled their garments. What was the nature of the problem? In Sardis. So I think you have to piece together the, the puzzle that's laid before us in these verses and understand a little bit even of, of the history of the city of Sardis. Jesus says to them in verse 1, you look alive. That's your reputation. Others look at the church in Sardis and they think it's going well. There's spiritual life there. But he says, I know the truth and you're dead. As a church, things are not as they seem. You're a walking corpse. You have all the, the myth of life, but in reality, internally, you're, you're rotten and dead. He goes on in verse 2 to say to them, you need to wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Their, their works of faith, he says in verse 2, are incomplete before God. 
Revive yourself. Get up and get to it. Another piece of the puzzle is found back in verse 1 where Jesus describes himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He's pointing back to chapter 1 and verse 4 when he is described, or, or the seven spirits are described as being before the throne of God. Also has Old Testament text behind it, specifically Isaiah 11 and Zechariah 4. The description points to the, the fullness and the perfection of the Spirit of God upon God's Son, especially in Isaiah 11. So what he means when he says, I have the seven spirits of God, he means I have the, the fullness, the perfection of the Spirit as the Lord of the church. Chapter 3, he says to this church in Sardis, I know what's happening as the Lord of the church who has the Spirit of God. He says he also has the seven stars, which we learned at the end of chapter 1, are the individual messengers to each church or the, the elders, pastors of those churches. So Jesus says, I have the Spirit of God and I also have the seven elders, the seven messengers, the under-shepherds who are to lead the church under the authority of Christ. And then the last piece of the puzzle, trying to put this all together, what's Jesus confronting here? is the, the history of the town of Sardis itself. It was a town that was founded for its strategic placement militarily. The city proper sat upon a, a precipice that protruded out of a mountain and overlooked a valley. And on this, on this precipice, this, this cliff, there was 1,500 feet sheer cliffs on three sides overlooking this massive valley, a, a very strategic place. The only entrance to the city was on the south side, and it was a, a very narrow and, and somewhat dangerous path up the mountain to this fortress. This was the beginning of the town of Sardis. You can imagine if you grew up in Sardis, you would think that you were impregnable, that no one could ever break through the fortress naturally that was yours as a city. There's two specific occasions in Sardis's history in which they trusted in their geography to save them. And then they were roundly defeated. Those who came to defeat the town of Sardis obviously tried to get in at the main gate and could not. And so the people of Sardis focused all their attention on the main gate while soldiers from the enemy army scaled the 1,500 feet of sheer rock cliff and scaled the walls and opened the front gate and the town was overthrown. They let go of their watchfulness, their situational awareness, because they trusted in, had confidence in what was physically true about their existence. So with all those pieces on the table that I just laid before you, how do we put that together and make sense of what Jesus is confronting? What's wrong in Sardis? What is Jesus saying you need to be revived about? Well, I think they're reflecting the self-confidence of their own town in a spiritual sense. Things looked fine. Things were going well. They had a good spiritual reputation. Anyone who saw them thought they had life and were useful to the Lord. And they had confidence in their accomplishments. They had confidence in their reputation. They were moving forward on the, the fuel of past success. 
Jesus says, I know the reality. There's actually a spiritual cancer in you gnawing away at the most vital of your spiritual organs. And that, that cancer is, is self-confidence, confidence in your flesh. You're not filled with the, the power of the Holy Spirit that is mine. I have the seven spirits of God, Jesus says. And you don't right now. You're walking in your own confidence rather than in the power of the Spirit of Christ. They were hindering and grieving the work of the Spirit as they walked by the flesh. And by that, it looked for them, it looked like them doing something for the Lord, but in reality, they were just a dead church doing their own thing with just a few true believers. Beloved, the church in Sardis didn't need the Spirit. In their practice, in their method, in their weekly meetings, they did not need the Spirit. They were not dependent upon God to work in them and through them. Their reputation was strong. Their community liked them. There's no opposition mentioned in the letter. Things are going great, humming along like everything's just fine. They're in need of nothing, and Christ says, you are a dead church. I thought for just a few minutes, what are some marks of a church that is self-confident rather than spirit-dependent? Because frankly, this terrifies my heart. That I, as a shepherd in Christ's church, would find my confidence for the work of God in the world in my own flesh. Somehow, in my own skills or abilities or in past accomplishments of ministry going well. We all know the temptation of resting on past laurels and achievements and coasting through present realities. So what are marks of a church that's self-confident rather than spirit-dependent? Well, she forgets that she can do nothing apart from Christ. And so she does not abide in Christ. This is John 15. She forgets the very clear word of Christ in John 15.5, without me, you can do nothing. And she thinks on an individual and a corporate level, we're good, we've got this, we can do this. She walks in the strength of her own flesh, moves forward with what can be accomplished by human power. But she does that under the disguise of spiritual maturity, that, that somehow the thing I'm doing for the Lord is actually evidence of how close I am to the Lord and how useful I am for the Lord, when in reality it's just a mark of my own flesh accomplishing something in the name of the Lord. Another mark would be the, the whole ministry venture of the church is built upon human ideas and methods, perpetuated by decades, sprinkled with the truth of Scripture, but moved along upon human wisdom as one generation after another learns the confidence and ministry of what it is that we can do for the Lord. This will look like exaltation of men over Christ. Men will become the center attraction in the church. This will look like divisions in the church into camps, worshiping men for what they can do in their flesh in the church. This was the church in Corinth, those who were so very fleshly, as Paul said. 
And they declared, I am of Paul. No, I am of Apollos. No, I am of Cephas. No, I am of Christ. This will also look like the ruts of forms of ministry where the church does what the church always does with little thought of of whether that is actually what Christ would have the church do. It becomes what the church knows and what the church can comfortably accomplish week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out. And this then will look like prayerlessness. Because frankly, why bother praying when we can do what we're doing? We don't actually need the Lord to help us do anything for him because we're doing plenty for him without him. Subtly shift our confidence from Christ to ourselves. This turns into then a preoccupation with buildings and budgets and schedules rather than a deep expression of spiritual dependence upon Christ to work in us and through us to do what he wants to do in his world through his church. Brother, sister, when does the church need revived? When she's cold? When she's compromised? When she's complacent? And when she's self-confident rather than spirit-dependent? Lastly, when she is Christless? when she is Christless. It's really criminal to try to cover the church in Laodicea in a few minutes, but I think it's helpful to kind of paint them all together. So I'm gonna breeze through this church. Many commentators and church historians have said that the church in Laodicea represents the church in modern day Western culture. There's many carryovers to this church and the, the modern day Christian church. This is the only letter in which there is nothing positive said to the church. It's a scathing rebuke by our Lord. Notice how Jesus describes himself in chapter 3, verse 14 of the church in Laodicea. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He starts with saying he is the Amen of God, the, the verily and the truly. He is the one that puts his stamp on all of God's work and all of God's promises. He is the fulfillment and the completion of all that God said he would do in the world. He is the amen of God. He is also the faithful and true witness of God. He sees things as they are, and he can't help but speak of things as they are. He cannot be a half-hearted witness that says half-truths with half-lies. He cannot paint half the picture. He must speak the truth. He is the faithful and true witness of God to his church. He is also the beginning or the arche of God's creation. This is a word used in Colossians 1, which, by the way, is a sister city to Laodicea, just a few miles away. You remember the the letter in the church in Colossae, they were struggling with heresy in their midst. And at the root of their heresy was the nature and identity of Jesus. Who is he? And Paul writes this amazing declaration of the glory of the preeminent Christ in Colossians 1. And he says he is the firstborn of creation. He's the ruler, the beginning of creation. He's not just the the first of all that was to come. He is where it all began. 
He's the source of everything that comes out in creation. He is the creator. Before I read the rest of the letter, Jesus setting it up with that powerful display of his character. Before I read the rebuke, I need to tell you a little bit about the city of Laodicea. It was a banking center that was incredibly wealthy, probably the wealthiest town in the Roman Empire outside of Rome. It definitely was the most affluent town of Asia Minor. And an example of that from history is in AD 60, they had a massive earthquake hit their town and, and the region. Several towns were just completely decimated. And as they were rebuilding after the earthquake, every other town took financial aid from Rome, except Laodicea. In their own prideful arrogance, they said, listen, we've got it, Rome. We're good. We've got enough money to rebuild it and to rebuild it better than it ever was before. They had money. Not only that, but they produced and were famous for a soft black wool. They produced it in all kinds of pieces of clothing and and especially into a carpet that was world-renowned and world-desired. People wanted the black wool carpet from Laodicea and the black wool clothing that came from there. They were also a center of of medical research and progress. They were on the cutting edge of of medical developments, and especially as it related to the eye. There's a, a medical center connected to a pagan temple just outside of Laodicea, and they had produced an eye salve that was, that was world famous, that people had used and had find, found healing of some sort for their eye problems. So they're wildly rich, producers of a, a popular piece of clothing, and they're renowned for their eye medicine. But they have a massive problem. They, as a city, were established in a place that did not have a good water supply. They were put there because of its strategic location for military campaigns, and it just stayed there. And as it stayed there, they were in need of of water. A few miles away was the town of Hierapolis, which was known for its hot springs, therapeutic to the aching body, useful and helpful. A few miles in a different direction was Colossae, known for its cold, refreshing water supply from springs. And so here's Laodicea sitting miles away from good water supplies in other cities. And so they build aqueducts, the famous Roman aqueducts. And they, they ducked it into the city. But by the time it reaches the city, what do you think that cold water from Colossae tasted like? It's tepid and lukewarm and frankly disgusting. How about that hot water from Hierapolis when it finally made its way through the duct all the way miles to Laodicea? What did that feel like? Tepid and lukewarm, worthless. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, Blind and naked. I counsel, to you, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Where is Jesus in relationship to his church? By verse 20. He is clearly outside of his church. He is clearly apart from his church. Rather than them being poor in spirit, they're pumped up in the flesh. They think they are right with God because of all of their good deeds and their ample spiritual resources. This attitude of self-sufficiency permeated every member of this church family. And Jesus says, you are lukewarm and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because you disgust me. Some have thought that the, the hot is a metaphor for spiritual fervor and zeal. That the cold is a metaphor for spiritual deadness and a lack of concern for spiritual things. And that lukewarm is, is somewhere in the middle there of kind of a spiritual ambivalence. And Jesus is saying, I'd rather you just not care or completely care, but don't be in the middle. Well, from what I told you about Laodicea, you see, that's not how they would have understood it. They didn't have a good water supply. They didn't know cold water or hot water in their city in a natural way. By the time the water got to them, it was lukewarm and disgusting. And Jesus is saying to them, you're just like your water supply. And you know why you're like your water supply? Because you're just like your city. You're self-sufficient. You think you're rich spiritually, but you're more poor than I know how to describe. You think you're well-clothed spiritually, operating in the, the accomplishments of your spiritual works, but you are naked, and the shame of your nakedness is seen by all but you. You think you see things rightly spiritually, but you are spiritually blind. And so he says to them, you need to buy these things from me. He's referencing back, obviously, to Isaiah 55, where the gospel offer through the prophet Isaiah is come, buy from me all these things with no money. Come to me by faith and ask these things of me and I will give them to you is what he's saying. Recognize your self-sufficiency and recognize your spiritual deadness. You are an apostate church, church in Laodicea. And so verse 20 says, I'm outside of your church. The door is closed to me. But it's not too late. You can repent. Open the door and welcome me in. Up to this point, you've had no need for me. You've done ministry in my name. You've worshiped me publicly. You've told others about me, but you don't actually know me. You know that's possible, right? Jesus said that very clearly in Matthew 7. That not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom. But Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We performed miracles in your name. We did good deeds in your name. Depart from me. I never knew you. There's an epidemic in the church in America of Christlessness. An absence of, absence of the real and true Jesus Christ. 
And it all stems back to an unwillingness to see the true nature of our spiritual condition before Christ. Jesus in the Beatitudes, his first words of the Sermon on the Mount, his first Beatitude said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What he means is, blessed are those who see it as it really is. Who understand their spiritual poverty caused by their own rebellion against the God of heaven. The only way into the kingdom of heaven is through the door of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Clinging to none of our own, we get in through none of our own achievements. Sufficient in no way to save ourselves or sanctify ourselves, it is Christ alone. And Jesus says, your forgotten Lord is your only hope. A Christless church is an oxymoron, isn't it? Probably the most oxymoronic thing that could ever be said. I tried to think of some similes and I just stopped. What do you say to paint the picture of how terrible it is to have a Christless church? Jesus is the cornerstone of the true church. He's the plumb line for the true church the foundation stone of the true church. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the master builder who puts together the living stones to build his church. He's the loving husband who purifies his bride with his word. He's the vine that gives the constant flow of life to the branches by which they produce fruit and glorify him. He is the good shepherd who carefully tends to his sheep, feeds them, and leads them safely home. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the only door to the ark that is heaven. He is the only way in. He is Lord over his church. He has promised to build his church in such a way that the gates of hell shall never prevail against her. He is the sovereign king and the royal master who laid down his robes of majesty and donned the robes of our humanity so that he could suffer under the condemnation of our sinfulness so that we could be redeemed and made his slaves rescued from our former master of sin and death and hell and won to our new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we can joyfully, gladly, and eternally serve our king as his slave. Christ is preeminent in his church. He is the head of his body. All things hold together in Christ and by Christ. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through Christ, all things are reconciled to God. It is by the blood of the cross of Christ that we have peace with the God of heaven. What is a church without Christ? It is not a church. It is in need of a reviving work of the Spirit of God, an awakening of the Spirit of God upon the members of that said church. That they would see that their accomplishments spiritually will condemn them to an eternity apart from Christ. That their only hope in 
is Jesus and his righteousness. So, beloved, when does the church need revived? When she is cold and forgotten her first works. When she is compromised and tolerates in her midst those who hold to false teaching. When she is complacent and doesn't care of the effect of error upon the body. When she is self-confident, thinking that she can rest on past accomplishments to carry her in present days. When she is Christless, moving forward absent of her Savior. I ask you this morning, has your spiritual doctor taken this time of exam and held up the pictures of your exam before you and said, this is what's wrong in your soul? Friend, I am not the answer to that wrong. Some spiritual work is not the answer to that wrong. The only answer is Jesus himself. Return to him, remember him, be revived by him, and then rejoice in all he is doing in you and through you. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we rejoice that your word is true and that you never lie. With that confidence, we have proclaimed your word the best we know how, receiving it by faith, asking you now to lay open our hearts and show us what is true about us. Oh, Father, would you do your work in your church for your glory? Would you make us to be a bright, shining lamp in a dark world? One that you could commend one day and rejoice in to the praise of your glorious grace. Father, where that is not true of us yet, please, by your work in us, make that true. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for eternal life secured for us by your sacrifice. In your name we pray, amen.